0: Well, good morning, church. Can you guys hear me okay? Through the mic? Okay, good. I can never tell. Because I'm so loud as it is. Well, Happy New Year to all of you. Um, Thank you for a great year uh, in ministry and a great year with 116. And just great uh, friendship as well. I love you all and uh, very grateful um, just for all of you and just the investment that you put in my own life and I know a lot of you guys have uh, really have given me your hearts and I'm very very grateful and uh, I'll let you all know how much I appreciate all of you and love all of you very much. So with that being said turn your Bibles if you would please to Matthew 5. sermon this morning is going to be a little bit more declarative or more of a declaration than expository today. Because of the new year I wanted to um, declare God's word to you but also encourage you um, as we go forth that we would examine our, our own hearts and our, our pursuing of our Lord in 2023. Matthew 5 we' be reading 14 through 16 just three verses this morning. Matthew 5:14 reads and this is Christ speaking ye are the light, of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. In verse 16, let your light so shine before men, that they may may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for our time together this morning. We're thankful, Lord, that we have a place to go uh, to worship. Uh, Lord, we're grateful for your truth. We ask, God, that you would give us the ability, give me the ability to proclaim truth, and give your church the ability to hear truth today, Lord, that they wouldn't be focused upon me and all my failures, uh, but they would be focused on the perfect and righteous Holy One of Israel, the Lord Christ himself. Lord, move powerfully in our service today. Let it not be a dud, but let it be full of the flames of the Spirit of God. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, we are approaching the beginning of another year. And millions of people throughout America are putting together their list of what we would call resolutions that will hopefully enable them To make changes to their lives for the better. The new year will be an opportunity to start over, right? To correct any imperfections in a person's life in the hopes of achieving success, fulfillment, and the American dream. One such man believed he could actually accomplish this and reach this status with enough effort, self-control, and determination, and his name was Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin is an American legend. He single-handedly invented the idea of the self-made man. Despite being born into a poor family and only receiving two years of formal schooling, Franklin became a successful printer, scientist, musician, and author. And in his spare time, he helped found a country and then served as its diplomat. The key to Franklin's success was his drive to constantly improve himself and accomplish his ambitions. In 1726, at the age of 20, Ben Franklin set his loftiest goal. You know what that was? The attainment of moral perfection. He quoted as saying, I conceived the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. I wished to live without committing any fault at any time. I would conquer all that either natural inclination, custom, or company might lead me into. You know where this is going, right? In in order to accomplish his goal, Franklin developed and and committed himself to to a personal improvement program that consisted of living 13 virtues. The 13 virtues were these. Temperance, silence, order, resolution, frugality, industry, sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness, tranquility, chastity and humility in which he said would imitate Jesus and wait a minute and Socrates in order to keep track of his adherence to these virtues Franklin carried around a small book of 13 charts the charts consisted of a column for each day of the week and 13 rows marked with the first letter of his 13 virtues Franklin evaluated himself at the end of each day He placed a dot next to each virtue each had and each that he had violated. The goal was to minimize the number of marks, thus indicating a clean life free of ice, ultimately with the hope of becoming morally perfect. But history has another version of Franklin, one that many of us are not acquainted with, and that was his involvement in a secret society called the Hellfire Club, or what we would call today a Gentleman's Club. It was a combination of political involvement mingled with a sexually charged atmosphere. It dabbled in the occult with rituals of Satanism, orgies, and in some cases even murder. There is no proof that Franklin hurt anyone or even participated in these mock religious rituals, but there is clear evidence that he had an appetite for women. Franklin even wrote several papers on subjects such as advice to a young man on selecting a mistress. His famous Polly Baker letter was an appeal to old maids to have as as many illegitimate children as possible in order to build up the population in the colonies. He wrote, passion has hurried me frequently into intrigues, With low women that fell in my way, which was attended to some expense and great inconvenience because a continual risk to my health by a distemper, which of all things I dread, although by great luck I've escaped it. From a religious perspective, Ben announced that he did not believe in the immortality of the soul and he considered evil permissible since God had created all things and so had presumably created evil as well. Even when he was an old man of 84, he wrote to Ezra Stiles, the president of Yale, saying he doubted the divinity of Christ, although he believed in his moral teachings. So it seems that Franklin was unable to fulfill his quest of moral perfection. So what are your New Year's resolutions, church? A New Year's resolution is a tradition when a person resolves to continue good practices, change an under an under desired trait or behavior, or to accomplish a personal goal or otherwise improve your life. Ten most popular New Year's resolutions are these. Lose weight, I saw you guys on the chat. When I asked, or I think it was uh, Josh that asked, what's your New Year's resolutions? Lose weight, exercise, and get healthy was one, right? That's mine as well. Um, Improve your finances and get out of debt. That would be a good one. Three, quit smoking. Anyone in here a smoker? I'm not, so don't worry about that one. Find love, number four. Five, get a new job. Six, make new friends. Seven, spend less time on social media. Eight, spend more time with family. Nine, be more thankful. Ten, spend more time with our family. The ancient Babylonians are said to have been the first people to make New Year's resolutions some 4,000 years ago. Think about that. They were also the first to hold recorded celebrations in honor of the New Year. Though for them, the year began not in January, but in mid-March when the crops were planted. During a massive 12-day religious festival known as Akuta, the Babylonians crowned a new king or reaffirmed their loyalty to the reigning king. They also made promises to the gods to pay their debts and return any objects that they had borrowed. These promises could be considered the forerunners of our New Year's resolutions. Check that out. It's From a pagan motive, right? The Babylonians kept, it, kept to their word their pagan gods would bestow favor on them for the coming year. If not, they would fall out of God's favor, a place no one wanted to be. A similar practice occurred in the ancient Rome after the reform-minded emperor Julius Caesar tinkered with the calendar and established, established January 1st. As the beginning of the new year circa in 46 B.C., Named for Janus, the two-faced god whose spirit inhibited doorways and arches. January had a special significance for the Romans. Believing that Janus symbolically looked backwards into the previous year and ahead into the future. The Romans offered sacrifice to the deity and made promises of good conduct for the coming year. So... Nothing wrong with making new year's resolutions, nothing wrong with goals, nothing wrong with wanting to make changes. But this whole idea of new year's resolutions really came from a paganized religion. You know, this is the whole idea. This is why yesterday when they said, "What is your new year's resolutions?" I just put, "Nope, none. I don't have any new year's resolutions really." Other than of course I want to get weight, want to get in better shape, but that's a new year, that's a resolution every day in my life. But Christianity is not about New Year's resolutions. It's about having resolutions that are deepened in our relationship with God every day of the year. For early Christians, the first day of the New Year became the traditional occasion for thinking about one's past mistakes and resolving to do and be better in the future. In 1740, the English clergyman John Wesley, founder of Methodism, created the Covenant Renewal Service most commonly held on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day, also known as watch night services, they including readings from the scriptures and hymn singing, and served as a spiritual alternative to the raucous celebrations normally held to celebrate the coming of the new year. Many of you know, when you think of New Year's Eve, right, you don't think of singing hymns. I mean, we should now, and and getting in the word of God, but the normal occasion before I was converted was what? We all know, right? We've all been there. If you were obviously younger, you probably would never realize this. But for me, it was partying and drinking and womanizing. This was the whole idea of New Year's. We're going to go into the next year with a bang. And it really wasn't. It was more like a dud. Every time I got up on New Year's morning, I felt like I'd been run over by a semi and dreaded the beginning of a new year. Despite the traditions, traditions, religious uh, and religious roots, New Year's resolutions today are mostly secular practice. Instead of renewing our commitments to the Lord, most people make resolutions only to themselves. And focus purely on self-improvement, which may explain why such resolutions seem so hard to follow through on. According to recent research, while as many as 45% of Americans say they usually make New Year's resolutions, only 8% are successful in achieving their goals. But that dismal record probably won't stop people from making resolutions anytime soon. After all, we've had them for about 4,000 years of practice. Basically, New Year's resolutions are grounded in this idea that we can become a better you, a better person. While while it's certainly not a bad idea to want to change bad habits and start good habits, this perspective that somehow we, especially in the church, can somehow reinvent ourselves is totally foreign to Scripture. Joel Osteen, who is a self-proclaimed pastor, televangelist, and author who preaches to an attendance of 17,000 people every Sunday morning at his church based in Houston, Texas, has had an enormous impact and influence on the church in America. And look at this. Osteen wrote two books, one titled Your Best Life Now, Seven Steps to Living at Your Full Potential, Sounds like Benjamin Franklin there, was released on October 2004 and reached the number one position in the New York Times bestseller list. He released his second book titled, Become a Better You, Seven Keys to Improving Your Life Every Day, in October 2007. It also topped the New York Times bestseller list and had a first printing of three million copies. Osteen has said that the book focuses more on relationships and not getting stuck where we are in life. Joel Osteen teaches that we are being saved from unhappiness and failure in life, not from sin and God's wrath. Osteen does not teach that we need a divine rescue from judgment, but rather simply a self-improvement plan. Is that really what we need is a self-improvement plan? Well, certainly Jonathan Edwards didn't think so. He, uh, Put together an idea of resolutions when he penned his famous 70 resolutions, which you can read online or in a book form. He said in his introduction to his resolutions, he wrote, Being sensible that I am unable to do anything, unable to do anything without God's help. I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. Sounds completely different to me than what we read earlier. And instead of once a year, he said to remember to read over these resolutions once a week. I would say it would probably be good to read over those resolutions once a day. Time does not permit me to go over each one, but the titles of each section should be sufficient. His first one was overall life mission. Second one was his good work, talked about good works. Then he talked about time management and then Relationships then suffering, then character, then spiritual life, which really dealt with the holiness of the believer. Uh, Ivan himself just recently uh, had written a book called The 21 Vows to Holiness. These would be great vows to focus on for the new year, um, which soon will be published by Grace and Truth Books, So, which should be out there to... Uh, a large number of readers, which these should be our vows for, for the new year. When ask your vows, it should be like, oh, I want to get in shape. I want to be rich. Uh, I want to do this. I want to do that. It's all about self. It really should be all about Christ and our relationship with God. So what does the Bible teach about making changes in our lives? Permanent changes that really do not require a to-do list every single year. Are we to deny that good works are not required for the Christian life? Certainly not for our salvation, brothers and sisters, but certainly in our declaration of those who are saved. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance, get this, as our way of life. God has preserved a people. He has saved a people. He hasn't elected a a bride for his son. God has done this, and he himself alone, not our good works, not our resolutions, not our vows, not all these things, are going to change the sovereignty of God in the believer's life. It is God who says that we are his workmanship. We are his putty. We are his clay. We are his design. We are the the intention of God in all the changes that are being made in our life. We are God's workmanship, created where? In Christ Jesus to do good works. These good works don't stem from our New Year's resolutions or desire to get better or a self-help program. It's about Christ. And it's about God building our lives through his son, Jesus Christ, as what? In advance as what? Our way of life. That doesn't change every year. We can't reinvent ourselves. Our way of life is a practice of our of our love for Christ and that we are saved in the way that we live our lives, every day of our lives, represents and declares that we have been converted. That we have been saved. Galatians 6 9 says this. Let us not grow weary in well-doing. Are we to do good works? Well, the Bible seems to indicate that we are to do good works. Good works don't save us. They just declare that we are saved, and being saved in the sense of sanctification as we progress towards the full, full salvation in the sense of our glorification when we are taken up and sin is no longer an issue. We're not to grow weary of well-doing. We're not to grow weary of doing good. As Christians, as, as our connection with, with a God who, who decided not to give us evil, by pouring out his wrath upon us, instead poured out his wrath upon his son in our place. We deserved the wrath of God. We deserved uh, the eternal hatred upon our lives for our crimes that we have committed against Deity, against God Himself. The enormity of our crimes is as enormous as God Himself in the sense is that they are unlimited. Why? Because God is eternal. He has no beginning and end. He always was and always is and always will be. When you sin against God, your sin is eternal. And that's when you hear people that deny, like this this you know, Benjamin Franklin really was an idiot, an intellectual idiot, because he denied uh, he, he he believed that there was no final there was, there was a final destruction, but there wasn't the, it wasn't hell. See, hell people get this weird view about hell that it's somehow separated from God. There's a little devil down there that's going to poke you in the rear for all eternity. This is not the reality of the eternal wrath of God. See, eternal wrath of God is not without God. It's it's with God, but it's minus his mercy and his grace. But you get the characteristic of his wrath for all eternity. Hell is the wrath of God forever. This isn't something that you want to take lightly. And when you remove that portion of God's character, his wrath, you remove God himself. People that believe in annihilationism, really the problem is, is that it's not about the injustice of God. It's really about removing God himself. You're removing God from the word of God. That's part of God's character is his wrath. One portion of that reality. One of his attributes. So you're going to remove remove an attribute of God and put annihilationism in there instead? You really just annihilated the gospel. You've annihilated God himself, which is tragic for people that hold to that view or come to a different reality of the view of eternal justice and eternal punishment. Matthew five sixteen. Jesus said in the same way, let your light so shine before others so they may see your what? Your good works. But what about, we don't need to do good works. Good works are like filthy rags, aren't they? Well, Listen to the good works he's talking about. And this is a confusion of a lot of believers. They think that there's no good works. Well, there's no good works that are going to qualify you for heaven and make you right with God. Is justified in Christ in his perfect good works. His perfect work on the cross. Satisfied God in your place. But once God satisfies you, you're being sanctified because the Spirit fills you. He gives you a new heart. Puts the Spirit with you and causes you to walk in his ways. To love the things that he loves. No longer being addicted and enslaved to sin, but you're now, if you can use the word, addicted and enslaved to the King of Kings, Jesus Christ Our lives are to be represented in the new life given to us freely by God's grace. The Apostle Paul said it best in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, therefore, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a old creation. No, talk about the new year. Let's talk about a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This is the newness we need to be preaching this time of the year. Not a new year. Okay, great, it's a new year. Great, God's kept us alive. Great, we have things we want to accomplish. But let's not forget the number one drive in reality is, is that we are new. We're becoming newer every day and we need to preach the newness that comes from Christ to all unbelievers. This is the newness that we need to be talking about Galatians 6.15 says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision, good works, or uncircumcision avails anything. It means nothing. This idea that somehow our good works, I'm not saying when you make a New Year's resolution, you're claiming that your good works are making you right with God. But I am saying this, that that that's a pagan derivative. It says a root in paganism. This idea of renewal every year that somehow... We're going to go ahead and we're going to get it right this time. You'll never get it right. The reality is is that Christ got it right in our place. And he's living through us. We're his workmanship. And God is moving and shaping us and creating us more into the image of Christ. This is the glories of Christ. This is the glories of the new year. This is the glories that we have as goals. You want goals? This is your goal. Serve Christ and him only. Love him and love him only. Obey his commands and preach the word to those who are dying and on their way to hell. How are those for New Year's resolutions? Do they fit in to your plan this year? Were they they things that you had talked about for what you're going to do this year? I would bet a majority, I'm not saying all of you, but I would say majority of Christians in this country are not setting any kind of goals that look like that. Their goals are to just have their best life now. I mean, look at the impact that these false teachers have had on the church in America. And you wonder why our nation is in the condition that it's in? It's not in the condition that it's in because people are murdering their babies left and right. It's not in the condition that it's in because LGBTQ whatever else letter goes behind there that they want you to know about and call them by. Um, It's not that. It's not that. It's not homosexuality. You know what it is? It's false gospel preaching behind pulpits in this country. It's preaching uh, the, the word of God falsely to people, preaching lies to people, deceiving people. And the sad thing is, get this, people want to be deceived. People don't just go in and, oh, I'm a victim. No, no, you're not the victim. You're part of the problem too. Because much of the church doesn't want the truth. They don't want anyone to tell them about Death and hell and sin, the wrath of God. They don't want to hear about these issues. They want to hear about being happy and how they can change their lives for themselves. You want God to make you rich so you can go spend money on yourself. Not so you can dedicate it to missions or dedicate it to the things that makes God's heart pleased. We want money for ourselves so we can go spend it on ourselves, right? It's all about us. It's not about Christ. It's not about living the new life. It's not about sharing the new life with other people that don't know Christ. We, have, we just get so excited each year because we convince ourselves that this is the way life should be. And we run to pastors that preach that to us every Sunday and wonder why this nation is up to its neck in sin. You wonder why babies are being murdered. They said if they could just get the Christian church to stop killing their kids, abortion would be stopped in one day. Think about that. Oh, you think I'm lying? No, that's a true stat. That's a a true statistic. I'm not saying they're all believers. I'm just saying that the confessing American church in this country kills their kids to such an extent that if they stopped, abortion would probably stop being funded, and it would stop altogether. Think about that for just a minute. Think about the homosexuality. It's rampant. And you got all these cross-dressers and trans people parading in front of our little children. Do you think that got there because they're just evil and we're just powerless to do anything about it? No. It's because we're not doing anything about it that they're there. Because we sit there and we allow it, we watch it. You know what we do? We get mad and angry and we complain to each other and try to act real tough, but we never do anything to stand up against it. We would like getting mad, just like politics. We'll watch politics. We we'll get all mad and, and, and crazy and yell at people and Complain about it and get real tough in front of other people, but we do zero. We don't even vote. Most of us, we don't. We don't believe in 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 the in that we can actually do something in our nation that would glorify God. I'm not saying you don't think. Don't leave this place and was being condemning because I'm not. I'm talking about myself as well. I mean, I, I'm convicted every every day. I see myself in the mirror. Like you're not. You're not even close to doing what you're supposed to be doing. You know, yeah, you could preach the word good on Sunday. You may be able to stand on a street corner, but there's a lot more than that that you could be doing. And, you know, a lot of it could be a time in prayer, time spent in prayer praying um, that something would get accomplished and that the church would rise up from the dead and get out and begin to declare Christ. Not on a street corner, that's great wherever you are in this life, wherever you go, being there, being ready to to preach the word in season and out of season. You see, this whole idea of the declaration of your of your vows on on New Year's really just, you know, it really totally flies in the face of, you know, just our commitment to serving Christ in our lives every day. Ephesians four twenty-four says And to you, put on the new self. Put on the new self. Created. Notice, the command is for you to do that. You know, we are to actively pursue Christ. Yes, God is sovereign. God is moving in his elect. Don't get me wrong. This is God's power. But we're not what would be termed a high Calvinist, where we're just believing that we don't have to do anything, sit on our butts, and just expect God to do everything. God, we are the means that God has raised up to advance the gospel, to advance his word. He uses people. In the scripture, Jesus didn't say, I'm going to go into the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He says, I'm sending you out. Go. He's talking to his apostles. And that command goes all the way down to all believers. So we're to go into the world and we're to preach the gospel to all creation. And how is this done? Jesus Christ accomplishes his will through us. This should be our will for the holiday season. Romans 6, three says, Do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death, therefore we are buried, we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we, even so we, he says, also should walk, should live in the newness of life. This is the reality of a believer's life. This is what the scripture tells us that we should be like every day, not just one time out of the year in making these professions. How is this accomplished? How is all this? You say, okay, this is great. I agree. As a believer, these things are true. But how is it accomplished? How are these things performed then? So what, what happens? I'm talking about now salvation. Mark 1.15 says, Uh, saying is that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is how it begins, with repentance and belief in the gospel. So is this manufactured from the flesh? Is it your will? Is this preaching free will? No. It's antagonistic against free will. The only person that has free will is God himself. It is God who freely chooses. It is God who elects. It is God who raises up the dead who are actually dead in their sin. How can a dead person make a decision? How can a dead person, by their own free free will, make a decision and become say, saved whenever they choose to? Oh, I'll be a Christian tomorrow. I'll make a, I'll make a decision tomorrow. Well, listen, that's not going to cut it. Your decision means nothing to God unless that decision was conceived by God and ultimately brought to its fruition where, yeah, you're going to say, I want to serve Christ. That comes from Christ himself first, not second. We don't choose Christ and then get saved. No, we are saved by God in his election, raising us from the dead. And we had no power in ourselves to do anything. And it's the power of Christ in us gives us a new heart. Then we come and we profess, God, I want to serve you. Well, that's a decision, however you want to call that, that doesn't come active and manufactured from the flesh. As Calvin says, all we manufacture is idols of sin. That's all we manufacture. What are you gonna to do to make yourself right with God? You're just gonna engineer that from your, from your sinful heart and say, I'm gonna make a decision. That means means nothing. It's God's decision that means something. He chooses. Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. What are you talking about? It was your free will. And I think in John, it talks about, we're not saved by the will of man, but by the will of God. The Bible says we're enslaved to sin. Jesus said, I come to set the captives free. Captive to what? What are you captive to? Your sin. You're dead in your sin. How can you be set free if you're already free? You can't. He sets us free because he's the only one that's free and that can give us any kind of freedom from our sin. We can't by our own free will. Free will is obnoxious, by the way. It's a false doctrine and it's heresy. And you know what? Many were killed. Many martyrs. Think of the first Scottish martyr, Patrick Hamilton. He left a Roman Catholic family, very prestigious family, very wealthy family in Scotland and went and studied under Martin Luther. He came back into Scotland and preached free grace only by the sovereignty of God. He preached against free will and was killed for it. One of the reasons he was killed. But the gospel preaches against free will. If you're free, why did Christ have to die if you could make the decision yourself? I know it flies in the face of what much of us have been indoctrinated in this country. It's been indoctrinated with free will and decision-making, and all this stuff. You want to know why? Because it's all about you. It's all about you. You decide. You make the decision. You make the resolution. It's all about you and your happiness. Choose whatever you want. Live like the devil, no need around to it. Choose Christ. Or live the way you want to live and just throw Christ on top of the pile. Totally contrary to Scripture. As a matter of fact, in Romans 3.11, Paul even addresses this. He says, There is none who understands. Well, if you don't understand, then how are you going to know what to decide on? He goes on to say, there's none who even seek after God. He says none. There's not 1%, 2%. None, none seek after God. None go after God. None desire God in their unconverted state. They don't desire him. They don't seek him. They don't want him. They don't love him. They're dead in their sin. They're dead. They're enemies of God. It's completely contrary to believe that man has free will. Think about it. Just think of the logic in it. The logic alone destroys that argument. And don't let this be an offensive thing to you this morning. And if it is, consider it. Study it out in Scripture. You'll find it's nowhere in Scripture. It's nowhere. It's been a doctrine that's been propagated by heresy. In the turn of the century, when rationalism and all these things came into play, it gave this ultimate glory to our intellectual selves opposed to a new heart with God. It all became about what we can do. We don't need God. And God's word changes as the culture changes. It's it's ridiculous and it's blasphemous. There's none who understands, brothers and sisters, and there's no one that seeks after God in their unconverted state. Acts eleven eighteen 18 says we read that the Gentiles also God granted. Whoa, you're telling me that God granted repentance that leads to life? That's exactly what the Bible says, that God granted you repentance. Even your re- repentance wasn't manufactured from yourself. God granted you, the Gentile, repentance. He granted, granted the Jews repentance. He granted Israel repentance acts and in second Timothy I'm sorry in second 2 Timothy 2:25 2. Paul says that we are that we must gently instruct those who oppose us in the hope that God may perhaps God's free will grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth it is God's will and God's decision for any one of us to choose and you say well then why? people choose. You're preaching repentance. They come and they repent because God enabled them to come. It's a beautiful thing. You are not in charge of people's salvation. and You can't win people to Christ in the sense where an argument's going to win them into the kingdom. It's a new heart. And by the election of God's grace, God says scatter the seed. Scatter it. Preach the word to everybody. We don't know who's God's elect. But we know God has an elect and all whom Christ died and shed his blood for will come will come. He made a covenant with the Father in Isaiah. When he died, he died covenantally for the people in that covenant, the elect. He died with them, buried in Christ. Romans 6 shows us this. This is the idea of God that the elect, the covenant people of God, died with Christ and risen. So everybody that he died for died in that covenant, and his blood cannot be removed. His blood purchased the people, and his blood gets what it paid for. It's not like, oh, he made men saveable. No, he saved them, the Bible says. They may not all be saved yet, but they ultimately will in the end of time. So again, you know, I'd like to ask you, um, what is your New Year's resolution? Jesus said in John 3, 3, He said, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. 1 John 5, 4 says, for whatever is born of God overcomes. You're not going to overcome things on your own, okay? You overcome the world, whoever is born of God. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. The Christian faith is a prevailing faith. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I I will build it. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Okay, The church prevails. The church will never be removed. I hate when people say that all the churches are are apostate. They're not all apostate. That is a false view that comes out of the view of dispensationalism. I'm not saying all dispensationalists believe that. But a lot of this idea... That the church fails is not in Scripture. The church doesn't fail. The church wins. They're victorious. It's unstoppable. They are unstoppable. The church will never be fully apostate. I'm telling you right now that there are churches that are are completely and totally apostate. And I would say a majority of them are. But I'm saying God's precious bride will never turn away from her master. You understand that? This is the truth in Scripture. Scripture. That we are not a defeated church. We're victorious, whether in life or in death. It'll never be stopped. The church will never go away. Uh oh, we don't have the church anymore. Even though it looks dismal and all the media channels promote this everything's anti Christ and Christians are rotten, you never hear anything positive promoted, doesn't mean things aren't being promoted. It's just that you don't hear about them. The, the gospel is being preached all around the world. In some Muslim countries, people are coming in to come into Christ in droves. We don't see it in China, the underground church, not the government church, by the way, but by the underground church, our winning converts left and right. So we need to be encouraged. The church isn't losing. The church is winning. It's a victorious church. It's a prevailing church. Remember this. And This is what the prevailing church looks like. A few more verses, then we'll close. 2 Corinthians 13, uh, verse 5, chapter 13, verse 5 says, What? As believers, here's a good way to start. Here's a good place to start for your New Year's, okay? For today, it's New Year's Day. Here's a place to start 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Ready? Examine yourselves. Then what does he say? Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Examine yourselves, church. Test yourselves. Know yourselves. These are three important, powerful principles that you can write down. These are things you say, you know what, I need to examine myself. I'm not saying examine yourself to see if you're converted. It isn't the scriptures always talking about being converted. Wouldn't it be a terrible place to live? I was like that when I was Arminian, right? I'd always be worried I'd lose my salvation. The first, the, the first gospel I heard uh, coming to faith or coming was all Arminianism, hyper-charismatic, dark, gloomy Pentecostalism that preached that I would lose my salvation at everything I did wrong. So I have, it, was a, it was a good behavior gospel. I thought my good behavior kept me saved and my bad behavior sent me to hell. I had a false gospel for about, I think, about six years until I stumbled on the way of the Master and I heard the law of God for the first time and the reality of the exceedingly sinfulness of my life and came to Christ for the right reason, not the wrong reason. Let me just tell you, I was deceived, but I'm not deceived anymore. Do not be deceived, brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ. Romans 13, 14 says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no Provision, no room for the flesh in regard to its lust. Examine yourself, test yourself, know yourselves, but also put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. There's a couple of good ones for you to start the new year. Second Corinthians four one says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we don't want to lose heart, but we have renounced. The hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor the handling the word of God deceitfully. This is a huge one in our country. But by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. There's another one for you. Another one for the church in our country. Do not handle the word of God deceitfully. And don't be crafty. Nothing worse than crafty people. Galatians 5, 16 through 22 says, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Here's another one for you. Walk in the spirit. Do not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so you do not do the things that you wish. That you wish. Your New Year's wishes, right? But let us, he says, live in the spirit. Let us walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. There's a nice one you can put down on your list this morning. You put it on my list as well. Also, we are to um, have the fruit of the Spirit. that We see in Galatians. That we need a Spirit, is, is love. This is the operation of God in our lives. This is what it looks like to the people around us. And the people that we love, even, and even the lost, that we have love, joy, peace, long-suffering. See, the world doesn't have that. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against there is no against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, once again, envying one another. And then we need to ease the pain of one another. That would be another one you could put down, that we want to ease the pain of others. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.12 says, So then death is working in us, but life in you. These are these are really powerful points. The Bible says that the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish. Here we go for the new year. Selfish ambitions. All those things we talked about that the world that are, derived from paganism is all about self. It's all about selfishness. So we need to die. These are all the works of the flesh. Dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So then, death is working in us, right? But life in you. What does that mean? Some among the Corinthians have accused Paul of being a false apostle because he experiences so much suffering. That everything is indicative of the Christian life to the world. Looks at, listen, it's about the American dream, isn't it? It's about success, it's about being financially free. <clears throat> but really, <clears throat> excuse me. Jesus said it's death in us. All who come after me must deny themselves, take up the cross. It's really death in us. Why? People see all the suffering in our lives, all the affliction, all the jobs lost, all the friends lost, all the successes go down the drain, and they think, what in the world is that compared to what we are getting? All of Psalm 73, uh, Asaph preached all about that and how he got deceived and all of that and believed all of that and then came to the conclusion it was wrong, and he behaved like a beast before God until he went into the sanctuary of God, and God showed him the end of the wicked. And there he come to the conclusion in the eye-opening revelation what the truth is about God, what the truth is about himself. He was a monster before God. And he was converted. Anyways, Paul's response is that the life of Christ is at work in the Corinthians exactly because he has been willing to keep going through that suffering enabled by the power of God. That should be the conclusion. It's not that I suffer. It's not that I have persecution. But the fact is that I'm still serving Christ through it all. That's my testimony. Not that I'm rich and powerful and sexy. But because I'm still alive through all the suffering and I'm still going That's a testimony that we want to bear every day of our lives. The the implication is that instead of challenging his credentials, the Corinthians should be grateful to God for what Paul has endured to bring them life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our chief aim, brothers and sisters, this morning in closing, is declaring his name to others and bearing his name in suffering so that we can testify that God is most certainly in us. So others would not lose hope, but they would be given life to move forward. Colossians 1.27 says, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, Christ in you, the hope, what? Of glory. Hope. Hope. We want to be Christians that communicate the message of hope to other people. Look at me. I have not been destroyed. The Bible says you've not been destroyed. Right? God has given us that overcoming, prevailing life to show the world that Christians can get beat up, slaughtered, ruined, maligned, slandered, gossiped about, completely rejected, but we never quit. Well, the world quits on these things. If I could sum it all up this morning, it'd be in the verse that we started with. It's Matthew 5.16, which I'd like to read once again. If You can turn your Bibles there. If you're not there, I know it kind of went all over the place. But let's read it one more time together, and we'll close in prayer. Oh, Matthew 5.14, Jesus says, You are the light of the world, of the world. Okay? A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. He's saying we need to be exposed to the world. That light that's in us should be exposed into the darkness. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, to hide it really, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all, all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, your good works, here it is again, and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for the realization that our life isn't built and designed and patterned around the world's thinking, but it's patterned around Christ and your word. Lord, let us see these things and hear these things today and be reminded that we don't have to make New Year's resolutions but we need to make these resolutions every day of our life that our premier motive would be to honor Christ, to worship Christ, and to bring Christ to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.